hand it out. Viva Las Vegas. The strip's still uh, still kicking. I haven't seen much from what's going on in Vegas yet. Maybe it's a no cell phone zone. They're just like, live it up. Don't post anything online. Someone that knows exactly what's going on with the vibes in the Stanley Cup is Nick Caprios, former NHL forward, Stanley Cup champ and co-host of Real Kipper and Born Kipper. Good morning. What is up? Man, does it bring back memories? You know, the 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 best thing about winning the Stanley Cup is watching last night or the night before with the Denver Nuggets. Mm. And forever, whatever you watch, a Super Bowl from the moment you win is that you get to look at the the person beside you and just say, I know exactly what that feels like. And that never leaves you, ever. It's like a flood <laughs> of emotion watching Mark Stone mm. lift the cup for the first time and, and others lifted for the first time and even Phil Kessel last night you know I know Phil didn't play and uh but he he spoke of the guys that haven't won it and you the closer you get to your championship the more you push for the guy that hasn't experienced it yet and that that's what makes a team and that's what makes uh, a team have the ability to to win round after round after round to to get to that point. Even Paul Murray spoke about it after the game that uh, you just you can't get there without that closeness, without that feeling of of pulling for one another and loving one another and caring about one another and doing almost anything you, you need to do to get to that point. That's that's what it's all about. Who passed you the cup, Kipper? Oh, that's a good question. Brian Noonan, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, and he, he was my roommate uh, in the city and uh, his first Stanley Cup as well. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's such a surreal feeling. Uh, the first thing you, you, you think about is, man, this thing's heavy. It's a lot heavier than it, you, you think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's 36. 35 pounds and then maybe 37 with champagne in it somewhere around there. What goes into like, we kind of understood what was going to happen last night. The misfits, that storyline going to Riley Smith first might've been a little bit of surprise. Um, but like how you talk about like what you remember most and memories and how much you guys love each other. Like the process of deciding who gets the cup next might, I'm just like imagining that being the funnest thing in the world. Yeah, I, I I think one of the players mentioned, uh, maybe even Riley Smith mentioned that uh, it was just kind of decided at the very end, and we were also one of those teams, and we were a veteran team. You know, we were led by a lot of ex Oilers who had won the Cup for you know five previous times, so it was it was nice to have their calming influence to tell you that, uh, you know, there's nothing to be really discussed until it you're ready to discuss it. So it, it sounded like Mark Stone told him at the, that last second. Um, but, uh, yeah, again, it always comes back to first-timers. So we probably had uh, maybe 10 or 12 first-timers uh, win a cup. The best memory I had uh, was when we took it to the China Club on a Monday night <laughs> and and 
we're up on stage and the place is going absolutely nuts. And then I look across the room and there's just, you know, Mark Messier just quietly, you know, having a, a drink and just watching us all be idiots up on the stage. And I'm like, Mass, come on up. And he's like, no, no, no. He's I'm a good. vet. I'm, he's a pro, eh? I, I'm good. I, I, I'm just enjoying watching you guys uh, <laughs> up there. And I'm like, oh, my God, he's actually bored of winning the Stanley <laughs> Cup. Like, like, that's what's going on right now. <laughs> it's a sixth one. That's uh what a luxury to have, eh? I've won yeah. enough of these. I'll let the I'll let the kids handle it. Um, all right. So other hardware handed out Con Smythe Trophy, of course, last night, and I, uh, Justin and I uh, were uh, big Jack Eichel betters, so we were a little heartbroken. Heartbroken, but heartbroken. The, the good thing is, I mean, they had a lot of options. I think that is a testament to the way that the Gold Knights were constructed and the way that they played over the last couple months um, leading up to this point. But Marsha so getting that in the end. Uh, were you kind of on the, the, the camp that he had that in the bag for the last little while? Well, we're still on to that. Uh, when you when you score the most goals, you get the most attention. That's mm-hmm. that's the league, and it's been kind of uh, notorious for that. Uh, but when you, when you think about like four or five guys that are in the hunt for that, uh, it tells you how good of a hockey club that you had. And for me, I mean, I just – can't get enough of Mark Stone as a as a player, uh, as a leader, and just that emotional element he brings to a hockey club. And you now I've always often compared him to Ovechkin when he scores a goal, where he's just it, it could be in September, October, and you see the same reaction as you do when he scores, you know, a hat trick in in the final game. And he's just one of those guys that how can you how can that not have a huge ripple effect of energy and emotion for your hockey club? And it was just a a brilliant move to get him out of Ottawa. And you know when you look at George McPhee and Kelly McCrimmon and just their their commitment to keep pushing until they get it right. And when they got it wrong. They said that they got it wrong and they were going to fix it. And, um, you know, not an organization that uh, ever doubled down on anyone. Uh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Kipper. That, yeah, that's how, that's how you, you, you go for broke and <laughs> take, your, take your bat off your shoulder and start swinging until uh, you get the results that you want. And, you know, it doesn't always work out for teams. Uh, sometimes they can dig themselves in a, in a deeper hole, but they've been around the game a long time and they knew what it took to to win this time of year and they built uh, they built their hockey club accordingly. Yeah, they've worked tire- tirelessly and ruthlessly at times. Uh, I thought maybe they were going they get gone too far with Stone and the back injuries, Petrangelo a little older, Robin Leonard suddenly not available. Like all this hard work maybe caught up to them in the end. But yeah, I mean, you nailed it with Mark Stone, who was healthy and was doing captain level things uh not maybe maybe not mark messier and i'm sure he partied harder than mark messier did at least in that last one uh but it was definitely the look of a captain and a true leader and one that can lead a team to a stanley cup uh you know we're jack eichel guys or we were pulling for jack eichel last night and he was unbelievable i thought he was stealing this the uh, con smite trophy from jonathan march so with his performance yesterday thought he was the best player on the ice even more than mark stone who was 
obviously unbelievable. But when you look at Jack Eichel and like the story arc and the narrative arc, are you kind of surprised that we got to this point? Like, I didn't know that Jack Jack Eichel could be the guy he was last night. I don't think anybody ever questioned if Jack Eichel could be the guy like he he was last night. Uh, what you you question was uh, where he was, you know, in a in a maturation, and he he grew up a lot uh, in the last year and a half, and maybe that had to do with the surgery, or maybe it just had to do with uh, uh, two guys and George McPhee and. And Kelly McCrimmon uh, bringing him over and saying, "Listen, you don't have to be this uh, uh, this eighteen year old that comes to uh, our hockey club and has to carry the weight of our organization on your shoulder." But look around the room. Uh, look at what we have here. We got Mark Stone for you. We got Alex Petrangelo. These are the guys that uh, are going to enable you just to go out there and have some fun. And you know, it's amazing how quieter Jack Eichel got. Even even his comments, he's 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 not a he's 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 always in control. Even in his interviews, they were calm last night. They were thoughtful. They were, you know, incredibly uh, gracious uh, with his teammates and how much they he loved them. And I bet you they he knows how much he was protected in that room. So all he had to do was just go out and and play the game to the best of his abilities with the, the talent that he had. And, you know, there's an argument to be made for too much too soon for the kids. And that's not that's not a, a Buffalo problem. That's a, a league wide problem that uh and again, you wanna you wanna go back to the Toronto Maple Leafs? too much too soon mm. for for young players who don't necessarily um, have a, a Mark Stone or Alex Petrangelo uh, in the room or even Jonathan Marcheseau, uh, Martinez, Alec Martinez. You listen to his comments last night being interviewed by Elliot and, and, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, David Amber. And just like, like we're talking about like, character we're talking about guys that that knows know what it takes to win and now jack had that coming to vegas and you know there's other teams including the toronto maple Leafs, where they want to draft you know in the in the top five and then say hey hey be that guy and it's like okay well who's who's around to show me how to be that guy jack didn't have that and Unfortunately, you know, didn't really have it in Toronto. Um, you, you may have thought that you brought some guys in like Joe Thornton, Patrick Marlowe to show you, but no, no, they didn't have those guys. Talking to Nick Kiprios, Stanley Cup champ, coast of Real Kipper and Bourne. Um, so on the other side of the ice, Florida Panthers kind of just looked like they ran out of steam. I mean, the game was out of out of reach uh, pretty early on after that first goal, and they kind of made a push. But it looked like Vegas was celebrating in the stands for the last half of the game. Um, no Matthew Kachuk, and I wonder if that kind of sealed the deal. Obviously, we find out he's broken sternum um, after the game, and there's all the injury reports that always come out past um, when the when the when the series ends, but. Was it just a, a beat-up team that was outmatched by a perfectly constructed 
Vegas Golden Knights team. Uh, yeah, for sure. And I thought like Paul Maurice squeezed every last drop mm-hmm. out of this Florida Panthers hockey club. And, you know, they got to show a little bit more of what they were last year uh, as a, as a president's trophy winner, um, you know, and to even get them into the position of, of making the playoffs and then doing what they had to do. But they just fell short. And, you know, there's, there's a, big difference between Florida's third and fourth line than, uh, than the Panthers, or I'm sorry, than Vegas is. And you know, even that blue line, and we had talked about this uh, Florida blue line, you know, in the second round with, with the Leafs, where it's like you can, you can appreciate what, uh, you know, Mark Stahl and, you know, Gudis have been doing, but eventually when does it catch up to you? And it was this series. It was uh, even Eric uh, Aaron Eckblad, who Paul Marie said, you know, named about three or four things. Uh, what's wrong with him with uh, a broken foot? And uh, uh, I think he mentioned a, a shoulder separation or something. He mentioned two or three major injuries and uh, goaltending. Certainly, they squeezed every last drop out of. Uh, of Bobrovsky as well. So, uh, yeah, it's five games and perhaps they know what, uh, what Carolina felt like, uh, you know, where, uh, where Rod Brindamore said, uh, it didn't feel like a, a sweep. We were, we were right there and we played hard and yeah, I mean, Florida can almost say the same thing that they, they pushed hard, but, uh, at the end, uh, you know, it all caved in. So uh, Bill Foley will live forever in hockey lore with his promise of uh, cup in six, and it happens in year six. Uh, we have a new owner in the NHL ranks with Michael Anlauer expected to secure the Ottawa Senators. Should we be expecting like similar promises from the, the Ottawa Senators and Michael Anlauer? <laughs> Maybe. Uh, take a look. Uh, Stutzel, uh, uh, Sanderson. Uh, he's got he's got some nice pieces to start, but uh, yeah, congratulations to uh, Michael and Lauer. Uh, wish him all the best. Of course, uh, uh, I had uh, a rare opportunity to be a little bit on the inside of uh, the process, uh, representing the uh, Apostolopoulos family. So does that mean uh, we're keeping you, Kipper? Well, you know what? Let's just take one day at a time. <laughs> uh but uh yeah i think it's a a great opportunity for for michael ann lauer and and his various groups uh and the challenge begins for sure to uh to go in there and uh and uh restore you know uh their their chances to once again compete so Steve Steos has been linked uh, to Ann Lauer. Um, what do you know about Steve? Uh, do do uh, not that yeah, you might have the insight on this. You might have the reporting. Maybe Steve Steos <laughs> is going. I'm not really sure. But like, what do you make of like? It's an interesting position, right? Because you were on the inside, as you mentioned, during this, and people have their uh, maybe their preferred candidates or people who they were talking about bringing over. And I get that. Uh, that's kind of like a little bit of a gray area. But it's interesting that Steve Steos is linked to Ann Lauer. And all this process, which dragged on, as you know, uh, it, where does that leave Pierre Dorian and DJ Smith? Well, I think it leaves them where they felt they were left uh, to end the season uh, with the unknown. And uh, you know, obviously, Steve Steos is uh, 
is linked closely to Michael and Lauer. They've worked together uh, in the past. They've had success together in the past. So, yeah, it's it's common that people link people to uh, to uh, either a, a working relationship or a friendship. So that that'll continue until Michael and Lauer kind of settles in uh, for the Ottawa Senators. Uh, Presently, Stales uh, continues as a Edmonton Oiler. So we'll just have to wait and see how this thing uh, plays out and how aggressive, you know, Michael Anlauer wants to be uh, once he's able to get the keys uh, to the shop here. Uh, but it's it's going to be uh, it's it's going to be interesting to to even see how much power he has, uh, whether it's uh, you know the coming of the draft or free agency, and how much of an influence he'll have. It'll be his money moving forward on any decisions. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. But uh, usually, you know, whether it's an ownership or you know even Brad Tree Living coming in as a general manager with the Toronto Maple Leafs, you generally want people that you know and, and trust and Shane Doan's here now with the Leafs and we'll see where Steos ends up uh, in Ottawa. It wasn't as though the path wasn't bumpy but the Ottawa Senators being sold for a reported 950 million after Vegas who just won a Stanley Cup was bought for 500 million what six seven eight years ago it is pretty remarkable and says a lot about you know where the financial dynamic has went uh, in the NHL. A final one for you we didn't get a chance to hear you on Peter Laviolette yesterday as uh, the Darko Ryakovich uh, news kind of um, took over our airwaves yesterday. Uh, but what do you make of the New York Rangers turning to a guy who's been in the Metropolitan Division, at, you know, forever here, coached, I think, over half the teams? Mm-hmm. And and why do you think tried and true it, when it comes to coaching, and certainly in big coaching spots like the the New York Rangers uh, this year, why does it always win over? Well, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Peter Laviolette. Uh, I think wherever he's gone, uh, he's had he's had good success. And I think he can help that team which we all believe is the in the here and now to win. Uh, so I, I, I don't mind that that signing at all. And I think he's a guy that can easily handle uh, the media and, you know, love uh, Gerard Gallant. Uh, but it just seemed like there was never a comfort zone in that particular market for uh, a guy like that who just wants to show up and, and do his job and, and get the heck out of there. So, uh you know, Peter Laviolette uh, can can help them win in the next couple of years. Whether or not you know Peter, you want to put Peter Laviolette into that kind of that uh, uh, Mike Keenan, uh, you know Pat Burns kind of short stint guys, where there's only a small window to get their message out before guys tire of them. I don't know yet if Peter Laviolette is that type of guy, but. Uh, I, I like them to go in there and and uh, and, and rattle the, the cage a little bit on on some of their guys that uh, you know at times can underperform like like many around the league. Kipper, you're a Stanley Cup champ, but have you ever sunk a 72 foot putt? Uh, I think Wayne Gretzky had uh, a, a a a tournament uh, up in Georgian Bay a few uh, Samsung that uh, was like the the for nationwide kind of Mm -hmm. tour guys who are almost ready to step into the the PGA. And I think I sunk like a 40 or 50 once on that one. 40, 50 feet, Kipper. Yes. 
Uh, it's a blind squirrel Come fighting on. a nut. <laughs> you know that. But uh, what a what a great uh, moment! That was awesome in, eh? in Canadian history for for Nick Taylor and uh, you were Gulf there, right, Canada. Kipper? Yeah, I, I spent uh, yeah I spent the day in uh, Sunday walking around did. Oakdale. Uh, my thanks to RBC uh, and Toronto Star for uh, for hosting me and my daughter. So it was a it was a great moment to be a part of that. That's awesome. Yeah, a Canadian Heritage moment. We were uh, proud to see it. And then we got another one with Jamal Murray. And then we got another one with uh, eighteen Gold Knights that are Canadians or something like that. So a good time to be Canadian. Uh, Kipper, thanks for coming on this morning, and uh, hopefully you guys got some stuff to talk about for the next little while. Some trade, some action, because no more hockey to cover. But uh, it's been a good time. <laughs> oh, we'll find something. Don't yeah. you worry. We'll just talk about your your cup moments and what you drank out of it, and what you ate out of it, and sounds like a blast. All right. Thanks, Thanks guys. Kipper. Chat soon. Nick Kiprios, former NHL forward, Stanley Cup champ, coast of Real Kipper, and born. Hopefully they can get to the bottom of the uh, Conn Smythe trophy vote. Yeah, they gotta, we got to investigate journalism waiting. on that, please. Might have to send a DM to Frank. <laughs> Frank, what happened, bud? We need the we need the peek behind the curtain at the, the voting. Um, okay, we have so many chewable things. Would you like a golf chew, a soccer chew, or a baseball chew? I love chew options. Can we go? I want a golf chew. Okay. It's time for something to chew on. Brought to you by Great Canadian Meats. Yum, yum, yum. You want a golf chew? You'll get a golf chew. (laughs) Tuesday night. Let me set the scene. Okay. PGA goes on Twitter and announces that Commissioner Jay Monaghan is currently recuperating from a, quote, medical situation. Mm-hmm. No further details have been made. The PGA Tour says they will provide further updates when appropriate. After a strenuous week and an upcoming strenuous week that we're in the midst of, Jay Monahan is currently undergoing something, and we don't know, so we can chew on it. So he won't be in L.A.? I don't know if he'll be in L.A. or not. We obviously hope he's well, but it's just something to chew on. Yeah, we hope he's well. Probably not uh, right to speculate. Probably not appropriate to speculate. But it is but, a chew. W- but worth chewing on, yeah. I will silently chew on this one because, yeah, not, how someone's health is sort of beyond it. But, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, Jay Monahan's been going through it a little bit here, and maybe there's reason to not be in L.A. Can I just give you a, a bonus chew? Sure. Because I want to bring this up. The right. Tebow Hutchinson's retiring. We're talking about Canadian greats and Canadian moments, but according to our buddy Josh Cloak at the Athletic, T. Hutchinson, who's obviously the captain of the Canadian men's soccer team, friend of the show, talked about him a lot, talked to him a lot, plans to retire from club soccer and likely will make his final international appearance at this month's Nations League finals. Why is it likely? Well, because he hasn't confirmed. I guess, anything. but if you're not playing club soccer anymore, like you're not just playing for Canada. Anyway, made 104 appearances for Canada. He's 40 years old. And yeah. obviously we know he was at the World Cup in Qatar last November when he was the oldest midfielder. Wore the band for Canada at a mm-hmm. World Cup. Not many people can say they've done that. It's been an iconic week for Canadian moments. And he's been an icon for this country for a very long time. So wish him all the best if that is definitely the direction he's going. And retirement, sure, will be a, a nice restful time for him. He's done a lot. Yeah, got a lot for Canadian soccer for sure. All right, we got lots to chew on with the newest head coach of the Toronto Raptors, Darko Ryakovich, who made his inaugural appearance at Scotiabank 
arena at Jurassic Park with balloons and fanfare and, and ice, ice cream. cream. It was just a whole thing. It was a thing. I think it surprised Benny. Michael Grange was there, our sports and NBA insider and columnist. He's going to join us after the break, talk about maybe first impressions. Did he have any ice cream? What was the scene like? Is he applying aloe vera? To he his might have to be. Face? And just a reminder, we will chat with Bobby Webster, Toronto Raptors general manager, to wrap up the show. Um, maybe Grange has some unanswered questions that we can relay to Bobby at the end of the show. Michael Grange, after the break. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Toronto Raptors have a coach. Do they have Step a defined? One. Do they have a defined direction though? I'm not Step really two. sure. <laughs> Back on the Fan Morning Show, Sportsnet 590, the Fan, uh, Justin and Ailish. Let's bring in someone to talk about a big day in Raptors land. One spent celebrating outside with ice cream and potentially sunburns. Grange, uh, were you prepared for the sun yesterday, or did that throw you for a bit of a loop? Say that again. <laughs> Were you prepared? Were you prepared for the sun that was beating down as Darko was introduced to the Raptors media? I was not prepared. No, I uh, didn't have a hat, <laughs> didn't have sunscreen, and it, it worked out well. Had it been like five degrees warmer, let alone ten, like it, it could have been. It could have could have fallen. Could have gone badly. And uh, then if it rains, you know. Could have been all okay. It was a high-risk maneuver, but it worked out well for, the, for everybody. So high-risk didn't quite, uh, it didn't backfire. Everyone's, uh, you know, no need for aloe vera this morning, I, I suppose. But again, if this was done a couple weeks later, uh, maybe that would have been the case. Okay, so Darko Ryakovich, uh, a bit of an unknown before a couple weeks ago. Someone who was a little bit off the board, never the front runner, in ter- uh, according to Bobby Webster, but someone who definitely stood out during the interview process uh in terms of what he said yesterday and he made the tour and he made the rounds even beyond uh what he said on the podium what stands out about what he stands for or what he stood for uh when uh you know trying to get this job interviewing for this job and speaking to players and other media members uh about uh you know what sort of team or this is going to be with Darko Ryakovich at the helm yeah, I think the really, the thing that really jumped out was how upfront and effusive he was um, on a couple of counts. But but I think one thing, just you know, I don't think I've heard a NBA head coach talk about uh, how he loves his players before he's going to meet his players. <laughs> and so, you know, and and I'm I'm kind of kidding, but I think that's a real um, important element in coaching. I think it always has been. But I think it's become uh, almost like a critical thing. Like, how how willing are you to really extend yourself as a person to really engage in with your players in a way that's more than uh, work, you know, the workplace and you know a professional relationship. And, and it's kind of um, you know some guys are wired for the some coaches are wired for it, more comfortable with it, capable of it. Others less so, and then and you know obviously different players have different needs in terms of how they interact and and react to you know to to their boss basically, and so I think that he was he's very clearly in that camp where you know I want to know your family I want to know your you know what's happening with you away from the floor I want 
you to know uh, that I am here for you in a way beyond basketball. And then, you know, hopefully if you, we build that trust, then, you know, we're all in a situation where we're more prepared, willing, and um, able to make the commitments and sacrifices necessary to win as a team. And, um, you know, I think so. I think that, that that's something that I'm not saying Nick Nurse didn't do that. I don't think it was front and center in his coaching arsenal in terms of really developing, you know, one-on-one relationships along, you know, throughout his roster. And uh, so I think maybe that's something they were looking for. And, and I think uh, that's certainly part of Darko's coaching identity. Seems like certainly something that they got as well. I, I took that away um, initially from he's just full of charisma. He talked a lot about relationships and culture. And as when a coach is a player's coach, which it seems like Darko is, um, did you think that that was intentional about where maybe the culture was going with the Raptors or where it had come to? I know we had some frustrating seasons, and I know that Masai talked a little bit about selfishness i wonder how much of an intentional shift that it was to get someone who really really is a player's coach and and kind of is proud about that yeah i think it was intentional um you know at this level of coaching and especially you know i think the coaching industry so to speak i think it's really evolved um you know the technical skills the tactical acumen you know, that's that's at a much higher level than I think it's been, you know, maybe ever. And, uh, you know, and it's for all the same reasons that even fans are more sophisticated than they've ever been. Like, there, you know, there's, there's so much access to video. There's no secrets. And for someone who really wants, is determined to be a great head coach, you know, you can kind of swim in that information pool you can dive as deep as you want to so the expectation would be if you're hiring somebody for one of these premier jobs they would have that coming out their pores like you know it's a great okay you know everything there is to know about basketball great <laughs> let's talk about you and um and i think in this case they were definitely looking for somebody who uh was very much prepared to see this uh as a as a holistic thing that you know, there's no separation between management, coaching, um, that, that there's kind of a unified presence there. And I think, you know, when you're trying to shift a culture or maybe recapture a culture that slipped a little bit, your options are to be way more authoritarian, like have a guy who's really going to come in and, and um, you know, I don't want to say reign of terror, but but really try to come down hard on guys and and, you know, approach it from that direction. I'm not sure that's even possible in the NBA anymore. Um, and so your other option is to have someone who really um, develops the interpersonal relationships to a very high degree. And then once the trust is there, you can, you can be honest with people. You can hold them accountable. You can, you know, expect them to be the best and they, they in turn, um, understand that you actually do have your best interests at heart. And it's a really tough thing to do in any professional sports environment because, um, you know, there's always that balance between the individual self-interest and what's good for the team. And that goes right down to money. And well, it really does start and end with money. And, um, and, and so to find someone who can 
navigate that as best as it, as it can be done, I think was is is really important to your culture, and I think that was an intentional decision made by uh, made by by Bobby Masai, Bobby Webster and Masai Jerry. So he clearly interviews well. Uh, Bobby Webster said as much, and when he was up there on the podium, it almost felt like an extension of a job interview. Like you know, one of the buzzwords was you know selfishness that you know Masai Ujiri talked about after the season, and he's kind of like, yeah, this is how unselfish I am, and I and, and it's not that's not lip service. I do think it's real, but it did feel like he was kind of you know complimentary and was a bit of a job interview uh, uh, feel up there as well. But we learned more and more about him as the, you know, the day went on and the interviews continued. But there's one thing to interview well, right? And there's the other thing to have references. Like if you're going for a job, you can interview well, but if someone who has a reference doesn't think you're good, a good candidate, well, that could spoil the party a little bit. So when you're talking to other people about the impact that Darko can have on an NBA team, what are you hearing? Yeah, people person, connector. Um, again, you know, the fact that he's super organized, super detailed, like those are, you know, yes, you better be. <laughs> but, um, but you know, somebody who is able to connect on a personal level, both with his players, but also with his staff. And I think that was, you know, that's another kind of un- underrated element in an NBA environment is 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 the staff really on on page? Do they feel valued? Do they feel like they're um, in roles that can help them in their careers as well? And I think uh, as an assisting coach, I think Darko's got really high marks for that. And and I would presume he's going to be looking for that in his own staff. And so people who've worked with him kind of were very highly complimentary when I spoke with them. People who coached against him in the G League, again, you know, had really good things to say. Uh, people who were kind of staffers in, you know, other organizations where he worked. Again, just people persons, just rave. You'll love him. He's great. And that stuff matters, right? Because not every, it's one thing to be, you know, to manage up and, be, you know, make sure you have all your bosses think you're great. But, you know, there's people in that environment who have, they really don't have any, there's no transactional element to it, right? Like they're just people you work with and uh, or, or how do you treat them? And that matters. Um, and I think, you know, one thing that did jump out of, as I was kind of looking in his background is he was with the OKC organization and got promoted to, from G league to, uh, to the NBA bench. So that's significant, right? Like if they had two years to look at him and, and they kept advancing him, uh, when he was with OKC, his first job on the, on the NBA bench was with Scotty Brooks, Scotty Brooks gets fired. Well, Billy Donovan keeps him. Uh, when he comes in, and not only does he keep him, he stays there for four years. So I, I think I think there's obviously he's able to, you know, these guys really didn't. These head coaches are pretty discerning. They don't want to work with a guy unless he's actually helping them. So that bodes well. One of his coworkers when he worked in OKC was Monty Williams. I think in his Billy, their Billy Donovan's first year, Monty Williams was the associate head coach. When Monty Williams went on and got the Phoenix job, he went back to OKC and got. Darko. So again, he may, he's able, he makes an impression. He's somebody that people want to work with. And, uh, you know, so I think all that stuff matters. And, um, you know, as obvious as, you know, the obvious issue is, is, you know, how does it translate into the head coaching position? Um, because it's, you know, there's no, it's a totally different beast. Talking to Michael Grange of Sportsnet, of course. Um, so we know that he's a great guy. We know he likes uh, the players, and he's going to be very charismatic, and I think the fan base will like him a lot. But what does this say about 
where the franchise might be headed. Is it a bit of a retool, a rebuild, get younger and allow him to, to cook with the young talent? Or do you think that they're still in a let's try to win games and see what happens mode? Um, it was interesting. You know, there was an acknowledgement that one element he provided was, um, this is Darko I'm talking about, was the ability to work with whatever direction the Raptors end up going. You know, when he was with OKC, you know, he had Russell Westbrook and, um, you know, teams that made to the Western Conference Finals. Kevin Durant was still there his first year there, I think. Um, when he went to um, to Memphis, it was, a, it was a young team that was developing. And very quickly, you know, the last two years, they were, in this one in particular, they were a team that people thought could win a title. So he's he's kind of had that experience of working with the best players around on in organizations where the expectation is we're winning. But he's also been in environments where, um, you know, we're we're kind of starting not from scratch, but you know we're we're growing. So so I think that that was something the Raptors were looking for too. They weren't maybe as keen on hiring a guy, you know, a really experienced head coach who, you know, wants to win, doesn't want to go through a rebuild. Um, so that I think Darko gives them that flexibility, which, which whichever direction they end up going. Um, my sense still is that the most likely outcome of this off season, with all the questions facing this team, is that you know they end up um, kind of somewhat similar to the team that they have. And 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 you know one thing that did was interesting when I asked Bobby Webster. And Masai Jury, but uh, you know, what did you learn about your team during this process? Because you're you're interviewing all these people, you're asking for their feedback and input on the team you have. And you know, one thing that jumped out was was one that post All Star break um, look when they had Jakob Pertl and they were uh, you know statistically and and also in the win column a better team. You know, people were kind of bullish on that. They see potential there, and. Um, you know, so I, I kind of wonder if I'd be a little bit surprised if they kind of peel back from that and 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 try to reboot. I think they'd be more likely to sort of give that um, team that they fin- that finished so strongly give that team a little bit of more resources and and see where it can go from there. And um, you know, but again, if if they have to or the opportunity presents, I think Darko in their mind gives them the flexibility to pivot. Yeah, part of the appeal, obviously, uh, or at least they feel, is that Darko can coach any sort of team, but you can also optimize any situation. So I think it is a worthy question, like what sort of team he's supposed to coach. And, uh, you know, I guess we'll find out about that. But I wonder if right now, like they have the support, the sort of talent that can actually hold up a Darko-led system. Like he wants to play team basketball. He wants the ball to move. He wants everyone to have multiple skill sets. And he you know, sort of illustrated that when uh, talking to William Liu yesterday about Desmond Bain and how Desmond Bain needed to be better or more than three and D uh, if he's going to have an impact at the NBA level. So looking at the talent the Raptors have right now, if things aren't going to change much, do you think he has the tools? Does he, does he have players that he can get more out of, in your opinion? Was there a stifling nature to what the Raptors were doing, at least at the individual level before? Excuse me? Or... Like, is this, like, this group that Darko's going to take over, can they actually do what he's going to want them to do? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think I think defensively there's a lot of, like, let's just presume that they more or less run it back. Um, you know, defensively I think there's a lot of potential to, you know, I think, I think you don't, 
I think there's obviously the flexibility to play the way they did last year, really high pressure, a lot of switching, very aggressive. That's not all that different than what Memphis did last year, by the way. Um, but, you know, there's, I think there's flexibility within that lineup that they can defend different ways too. So, so I think that's the real question is what can they do to augment this team in the half court offensively? And um, I think there's a couple of things, you know, there, there's more room for more cutting. Uh, I think you can play off of um, Jakob Hurdle more as a playmaker. I think you can um, try and play Fred Van Vliet off the ball and um, Gary Trent Jr. obviously off the ball and, and, and OG Ananobi. You can keep him in space until you can create a little bit more space for more cutting, for more. That makes it a little easier to attack the paint and collapse the paint. Um, and I think everything that you've read and heard about Darko is really he, his number one priority is ball movement. And so, you know, that doesn't necessarily, I think it's easier to do when you have someone who can collapse the paint like John Morant or someone who can spread the floor like Desmond Bain. But, um, you know, it doesn't have to be only like that. Um, and let's assume that there are some changes made that would address, for example, um, maybe a lack of shooting throughout the lineup, et cetera. So, you know, I think this team is still going to have to be built in, from their defense out. I think they're still going to have to be a team that can thrive and transition. But if they can improve, you know, you don't have to become the best half-court offense in the NBA. But if you can get to that 15-16 range, you know, middle of the pack, and still be fairly premium in some of your other areas, that can have a big impact. And you can go, you know, it's not a team that won 21 games. They won 41. And so they get to 49, you know, we, you know, I think everyone would talk that, would say that's a pretty successful season. They're probably, you know, a fifth, sixth seed, maybe better. You never know. And, um, and everyone would be happy with that. So, you know, I think if, if one thing I also would say that's, should be in uh, Darko's favor is by training camp opening, a lot of questions around each player's individual contract situation should be resolved. Mm -hmm. So um, you're not going to have, you know, three players in rotation uh, in free agency or adding to free agency. You're not going to have a couple other key players in your rotation uh, heading into extension years. Like a lot of those questions will be resolved. I think that, that that makes it easier to have guys buy in and maybe give up parts of their game they think are important. And uh, that probably could, could be a, a kind of hidden benefit too. So we expect like a different criteria in terms of like team play and, and what's expected. Um, but from an individual standpoint, I think the one that is most interesting is Scotty Barnes. Uh, if you could glean anything from the comments yesterday from Darko, uh, how do you think he wants to use Scotty Barnes? Well, I think the best way to use Scotty Barnes is have the ball in his hands, right? And, um, you know, it doesn't mean it always has to be his, his hands, but you do have to play through him. And I think, you know, again, in a system where um, you also have the optionality of playing him as a screener, you also have the optionality of playing him as a, as a cutter. And I think if you're talking about the best you know, why Scotty Barnes is such a, um, an intriguing player is because he can, you know, apart from spot up shooting, right? Like he is able to participate in almost any type of offense you want to run. 
um, either as as a screener as a screener who can you know take advantage of four four on three situations as a cutter playing off others and as a guy who um, can initiate offense with the ball in a point guard role. So I think you know based on you know Darko's track record is you know he I think he believes in a very egalitarian offense where everyone has an opportunity to make plays for everyone else. So that doesn't mean you don't always emphasize one, you don't occasionally emphasize one player or another given the situation. But I think, you know, just Scotty Barnes playing a little bit more active role, his usage increasing a little bit, doesn't have to be up to 30% or anything like that. I think that would be both a natural progression for Barnes at this stage of his career, but I think would also be consistent with what um, Darko wants to do with a basketball team. Last one for you, Grange. Uh, you mentioned Fred while conceptualizing what the Raptors might look like next season. Uh, doesn't have a contract yet, but did we glean anything from yesterday? Did we learn anything about Fred's future yesterday with Masai Ujiri and Bobby Webster speaking with the media? Yeah, just that, you know, communication lines are open. Relationship is obviously very good. Um, and no one was surprised that he was headed to free agency. That was kind of understood all the way along, almost since, you know, when he didn't. As, I think as long as he got through this season playing well and healthy, which he certainly did by the end of it. Um, you know, it was almost a no-brainer. He was going to be a free agent. And, you know, I would – I kind of think I pointed out the other day to somebody that um, I don't think it was a coincidence at all <laughs> that, you know, on the what was ended up being the clinching day for the NBA Finals that kind of the lead news story in all the pregame shows uh, was, you know, Fred Van Vliet you know, declining his option, right? Like that's just good agenting. And, uh, you know, you get, you know, he's kind of the first of the more significant free agents to kind of get out there and get his name out there and certainly, you know, put up the for sale sign, so to speak. Um, Does that mean that it reduces or minimizes the Raptors opportunity to, to be part of that process? I don't think it changes anything at all. Um, you know, I think one thing the Raptors have done really well is assess the market for their own free agents and, you know, sign guys to deals that turn out to be actually a really good um, and fair contract for the player. And so, you know, we saw Kyle Lowry go through, you know, more than once. Um, we've seen other players go through it. And, you know, they, they don't lowball guys. They, I think, do a really good job of assessing the market. And so I think if, you know, it's very unlikely that Fred Van Vliet's going to go somewhere that, you know, I think if he goes somewhere, it's going to be because someone's really going to want to give him a lot of money and maybe more than the Raptors are comfortable with and, and they'll move on. But um, I think, you know, I think there's a, probably a good possibility that, that his best opportunity is going to be here in Toronto. Uh, the NBA draft is eight days away, so uh, that'll be the. Well, you know, we'll start learning more and more about the decision-making process with Darko uh, either then or before then. Grange, we appreciate you coming on this morning, and you know we're glad that uh, no sunburns to deal with today. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Take care. Have a great day. That's Michael Grange of Sportsnet. It would not be a Toronto athlete if the leverage wasn't used to the best of its ability, and uh, I think it's a good point that he makes that on the morning of the NBA Finals or Game 5 of the NBA Finals, Fred Van Vliet's putting himself out there being like, yeah, I'm available. I'm ready to make some money. We've got a chance to talk to Bobby Webster. 
later on in the show with the final hour here coming up. Uh, Toronto Raptors general manager was asked a couple questions. Uh, Grange mentioned he saw Masai yesterday as well. And I think the direction is something that a lot of people still have the question with, but it seems like Darko's a nice, maybe in the middle. Decide, choose your own adventure. Yeah, I, no, I think that's a good place to be in. Uh, but I think the number one checkpoint or the number one thing should be in terms of criteria development. I mean, you got to develop players. They got to do a better mm-hmm. job doing it. Um, you mentioned Bobby Webster, part of a three-pack of guests in the 8 a.m. hour. We are slamming the fuck hour. Brent Wallace, Randy Foy, Bobby Webster. We'll start all that. Brent Wallace after the break. <laughs>